So let me give you a little bit of background to this confession. I know some of you are sort of, sort of familiar or pretty familiar with it. Some of you maybe not that much. So um, just give you a, a, a quick sort of background. It was um, put together um, by probably a couple of different editors in a church in London um, in, in, in uh, the 1600s. It borrows heavily on a couple of other sources. Um, in the first place, it borrows on the Westminster Confession of Faith um, from 1640, some 46, I believe. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is um, uh, a, an evangelical Presbyterian um, confession of faith. Secondly, it borrows on the Savoy Declaration, which was put together by Congregationalists. So these people, um, still paedo-baptists, still, still in, baptizing infants as, as members of the church, but, um, but congregationalists in their understanding of church government. This is from 1658. And then finally, some of the confession just apparently comes from the editors of the confession itself, the writers, um, and most people believe they were Nehemiah Cox and William Collins from a little... Um, church on um, Petty France Street in London uh, in the UK. <clears throat> the confession was originally put together in 1677, but uh, there's a, if you know a little bit of, won't go into all the history, but there's a lot of turmoil going on and, and not a lot of toleration for nonconformist people, people who are not conformed to the state church. And so there was an act of toleration that was passed in, I believe, 1688 or 1689. Um, William and Mary are on the throne, and there's, there is sort of freedom now for these ministers, pastors of various churches, to gather where they were unable to gather in the past when the, when the, the Confession of Faith was put together. So in 1689, about 100 different churches or 100 different pastors met to sign uh, uh, acknowledging their agreement um, with the uh, doctrines outlined in this confession of faith. Um, this confession continued the tradition of uh, Reformed or Calvinistic or particular Baptists that had uh, been begun back in 1644 with the writing of what was called what's now called the first uh, London. Confession of Faith. So, hence, this is the second London Confession of Faith. This confession was more specific in a lot of areas where the first one was a little more general, although it came from a particular or a, um, a Calvinistic sort of Baptist perspective. With a couple of additions, this uh, Confession of Faith also uh, was adopted by a number of Baptist churches in the early colonial America, and it became known as the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. They added a couple chapters, but essentially the same confession. So a lot of American Baptist life has its roots then ultimately um, back in this these confessions of faith that came out of really the, the, the life of Puritanism, the flowering of the Reformation ultimately in, in England. Um, 
Let me give you just a kind of overview in terms of the uh, some four descriptions of this confession of faith uh, that will give you a hint about its distinctives. And then we'll look at uh, the way it's laid out and then just kind of real quickly go through the first two chapters. So don't fear, we're not going to go hours, uh, but, uh, but let me do that. So the 1689 Confession, I think, could be described in four ways. Number one, it is Calvinist in its soteriology. Um, by Calvinism, uh, of course, sort of a nickname, uh, a reference to the doctrines of sovereign grace, God's sovereign grace in salvation. And this was, in particular, um, setting itself up as distinctive from more Arminian uh, theology. So these Baptists that put together this confession were uh, Calvinists. Secondly, this confession is covenantal in its hermeneutic. Covenantal in its hermeneutic. Um, and in our day, we would see that in distinction from dispensationalism. And both of those have reference to how one reads the Bible, hence it's a hermeneutic, how one reads the, 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 the Old Testament particularly, and the way that the whole Bible fits together. Okay? Um, to just really, really broad brush it, a covenantal hermeneutic sees a greater unity and a dispensational hermeneutic sees a stark um, distinction between um, God's dealings at different times in, in history. Uh, <clears throat> this confession, thirdly, could be described as Baptist. Say, well, duh. Um, it was put together by Baptist, but it is Baptist um, in its ecclesiology. Uh, there, in these first two senses, there was a lot of similarity, a lot of kinship with the Westminster Confession that came before it, um, which was clearly Calvinist and covenantal as well. The covenant theology, as it worked, was worked out among the Baptists, was distinctive. It was different from the covenant theology of the, the, the Presbyterians and the other Proto-Baptists. But um, this particular confession was also very clearly Baptist, in, its, um, in the ramifications of its covenant theology, namely in its ecclesiology, its doctrine of the church, and, uh, and as opposed to being paedo-baptist. And then finally, number four, it could be described as being reformed in its view of the law. Being reformed in its view of the law. And this would be in distinction from Lutheranism. Um, and I won't, we'll go into this more when we get into the chapter on the law and the Sabbath, but um, Lutheranism saw a, a more a greater distinction between law and gospel, um, a hard and fast distinction, and, 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 and there, is, there certainly is a distinction, but the Baptists saw it from a particular viewpoint that came to be um, the broader reformed viewpoint of the law. So... Um, at least that'll give us some sort of uh, descriptors to help. And, and again, we may be, as a church, you may be in different places on some of these different things, but I want you to understand kind of where I'm coming from because I think it's going to be a helpful thing. 
All right, so let's go to the chapters of the Confession. There are 32 chapters. Uh, I didn't give you a table of contents. I should have put that on there, I guess. But uh, let me go through it very quickly for you, uh, how this confession is laid out. As I said, it's a systematic theology. So if you've ever read a systematic theology book or skimmed it, you probably are pretty much aware of the types of categories that are going to be focused on and even sort of the order in many ways. Uh, different systematic theologies will order things in slightly different ways, but in general, they sort of tend to follow a pattern, a, a sort of a logical progression that is patterned after um, God's own revelation in the scriptures. So we have, first of all, they have two chapters that are very foundational in just understanding God and theology at all. The first chapter is the, on the scriptures, of the holy scriptures. And uh, we would say that, that the scriptures are our primary means for knowing God. We cannot know God um, uh, in any level, in any saving way, apart from uh, divine revelation, apart from special revelation. And that special revelation is given enduringly to us in the Holy Scripture. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the doctrine of God, of God and the Holy Trinity. So right there you have your two foundational things. God and his revelation. We know God through his revelation. And uh, so these two things become foundational. Then you get into cha several chapters which deal with God's acts. God's acts. Chapter 3 is about God's decree. God declaring what will be. Chapter 4 is his work, his act of creation. Chapter 5 is, are his acts of providence. How he governs the world. Chapter 6 is about the fall of man under the providence of God and the sin and the punishment of sin. So you have these chapters on God's acts. And then you have a long set of chapters that are about God's redemption, God's acting throughout history and in individual lives to bring about redemption. So you have the, these beginning with a chapter on God's covenant. Then you have a chapter, and covenant theology figures heavily into this, um, this confession of faith. A chapter on God's covenant. Then you have a chapter on Christ the mediator, and a chapter on free will, and how all of these things play together. So these are sort of foundational to redemption. And then you have a set of chapters that are about the particular aspects of redemption as someone experiences redemption. So you have a chapter on the effective call, the effectual calling of God, calling to salvation, justification, adoption, sanctification, saving faith, repentance and life unto life and salvation, of good works, of the perseverance of the saints, of the assurance of grace and salvation. So a number of chapters that we would say, do you remember the, the sort of the uh, uh, term that I threw out a few weeks ago, the ordo salutis, the the way salvation is experienced in the life of an individual. Okay? And then you have a couple of chapters still in this broader um, category of talking about God's redemption that talk, one chapter that talks about the law and one chapter that talks about the gospel and uh, the extent thereof, the extent of the grace thereof. So law and gospel and how those relate in the overall theology of the Bible. Then you come to a larger section that deals with the church and the world. And so you've got chapters like this. Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Religious worship and the Sabbath day. 
lawful oaths and vows, the civil rulers, magistrates, marriage, the church, the communion of saints, baptism in the Lord's baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then there's a chapter that summarizes them. So the church in the world, and then finally you have two chapters on last things. That's the way every good systematic theology ought to end, right? Systematic theology, um, uh, excuse me, chapter 31, uh, of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. So individual sort of eschatology, where does my soul go when I die? What about the end? Um, what about my body? And then chapter 32, the finality of it all at the of the last judgment. So that's really the where the where the uh, how the thing opens up. Uh, so I think we can cover two full chapters in just a few minutes. Let's give it a try. Um, we shall see. I gave you a copy of it, and I am going to put an outline on the on the screen. The outline's not mine; it comes from Sam Waldron. But uh, I'll put that up just so we can kind of keep oriented as we go through here. So there's two chapters here. Chapter 1 is of the Holy Scriptures. There are 10 paragraphs there. And chapter 2 is of the Holy Trinity, which sort of appropriately has three paragraphs, right? <laughs> um, so chapter 1 uh, of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Waldron divides this up this way. Paragraph 1 is about the necessity of the scriptures. So let's just read that paragraph, and I won't make too many comments, but I want to stop here and there as we work through this. At least we put our eyes on it. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His, to declare that his will unto His church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto people being now ceased. All right, so we have the necessity of the Scripture. Uh, what it's saying essentially is that nature can reveal something true about God, but for salvation, a person must, person must hear the gospel. He must have special revelation from God. He must know how God will redeem a person. And a couple of important passages for this, just if you kind of want to file them away. Romans chapter 1, right? Romans 1, God has revealed himself in all of creation. In everything that's made, people can know that he's his eternal power and his divine nature. But Romans 10 reminds us that how will they call on him of whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach except they be sent? There's got to be the communication of the gospel message in order to have salvation. So it's talking about the necessity of the scriptures. Paragraph 2 and 3, uh, Waldron outlines as the identity of the Scriptures. 
We won't read it all, but you see, if you just kind of let your eyes glance over paragraph two, he is spelling out, uh, they are spelling out all of the books that are considered to be the Holy Scriptures, that is the Old and New Testaments, and spelling out specifically the 66 books that we consider to be canonical um, scriptures. Chapter uh, 3, or paragraph 3, makes reference to the apocryphal books as being not of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor can't, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of other than uh, than other human writings, okay? So, excluding the apocryphal apocryphal books from uh, the scriptures, and of course, you know, there there I mean, the reasons for that are, are you know longer to go into. But um, in the first place, it, it is true that that the uh, the Jews accepted the biblical, what we would consider the Old Testament biblical canon, as um, as canonical. And, and so we're relying heavily now here on our Lord who, who recognized the accepted Old Testament Jewish canon, um, which did not include um, these apocryphal works as part of Holy Scripture. Um, also, beyond that, there's the fact that, that none of the apocryphal works are, uh, are quoted in the New Testament. That, that doesn't mean automatically that something is not is not scripture, like if, if one of the Old Testament, our canonical Old Testament books was not quoted, doesn't mean we've got to throw it out. But it is surprising that out of 27 New Testament books, there aren't these quotations uh, from any of the apocryphal sources. And, uh, and then, of course, the fact that some of the apocrypha seems to teach things that contradict um, other clear teachings of the scripture. So, for these reasons and, and others, um, they said, you know, the, this is not the word of God. So they identify the, the scriptures, paragraphs 2 and 3. Paragraphs 4 and 5, they talk about the scripture's authority. Authority. Paragraph 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church. You were in Sunday school this morning? That's what we were talking about, right? Um, it dependeth not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Paragraph 5, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem for the Holy Scripture. So it's not saying the church has no testimony to bear. No, in fact, she does but the authority of the Bible is not grounded upon the authority of the church. It's the other way around. The church is built upon the authority of divine revelation. Nevertheless, the church does give testimony that creates reverence and high esteem. Uh, second, sort of in the middle of that first sentence there. And what else speaks to the testimony of the Bible? The heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of the parts. That's huge in my mind. The unity of the Bible is to me is one of the greatest testimonies of the, the inspiration of the scripture. And the scope of the whole, and by scope there, we, we typically think, I think, you know, the breadth of it. It's talking more about the focus of it. 
the focus of the Bible, um, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies, so these are all testimonies to the truth of the Bible, right? And the entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, the divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So where does the authority of the Bible come from? The writers of the confession argue it doesn't come from the church. Ultimately, it's not resting on the church. The Bible instead, we argue, is self-authenticating. It is the Word of God. It manifests itself to be the Word of God. There are evidences, there are testimonies that it is the Word of God, and the confession deals with many of them, including the unity of the Bible and so forth, the testimony of the church, the changed life, the effectiveness of the doctrines of the Bible. I mean, in one sense, you just have to say, hey, look around. Look around. The Bible explains everything that you see. The Bible explains the good in the world. The Bible explains the brokenness in the world. I was well. I don't want to get up too much off track, but um, the Bible is self-authenticating, and ultimately, it points us to the Holy Spirit of God that bears testimony in our hearts by and with the Word, through the Word, that it in fact is um, divine revelation. Uh, one of the key passages on this, First uh, Corinthians two fourteen, you probably memorized at some point in your life. Uh, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto them. He cannot know them, for they are spiritually discerned, right? Memorized that one a long time ago. Um, it's the Spirit of God. Looks like it's the Spirit of a man who can know the heart of a man. It's the Spirit of God who knows the heart of God. When that man has the Spirit of God, he hears the words of God and he says, that's God. So it's the Spirit's testimony. Then we get to paragraph 6 and... Uh, this is about the sufficiency of Scripture. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. In other words, it's explicit or it's implied, but necessarily implied. Unto which, he said, they say, Nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of man, men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Holy, of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word and that there are some circumstances according, uh, concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. In other words, there are certain things the Bible's not explicit about, but, but the Bible speaks to. They are what we would call circumstances of worship, but the Bible teaches us the elements of worship. It teaches us um, the, the everything that we need to know for salvation, life, and faith um, in a way that pleases God, the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Of course, 
By that, we don't mean the Bible's exhaustive. It doesn't tell us everything about um, algebra, for example. It's not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. And here's the way I would say it. The Bible doesn't tell us what to think about everything, but it sure tells us how to think about everything. It tells us how to think about absolutely everything. Everything is rooted in the Scripture. The Scripture is sufficient for our understanding of all things. Paragraph 7, it's clarity. The clarity of the Scripture. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place or of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. I'm talking about the clarity of the Bible. What sometimes the old word was perspicuity of the Bible. The fact that what is necessary for salvation is clear. And of course, this is an argument against um, the um, tendency to keep the Bible away from people because people can't understand it. it needs to be interpreted for them and sort of spoon-fed to them. And um, also speaks against the sort of modern idea that, well, the Bible is so obscure it can mean anything to anybody. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I've heard people say that to me. You know what I found in years of studying the Bible and reading lots of other careful people? It can't say anything. <laughs> it doesn't. It says one thing. Now, we might sometimes disagree on, on what that one thing is, but here's what I found. People who are absolutely committed to the Bible, that it is the Word of God, and give careful attention to contextual understanding of Scripture, by and large, with all our differences, we ended up, we end up you know, kind of right here together when you compare that to all of the differences that people who are uh, who who have a low view of scripture, uh, the differences that they have among themselves, right? People who are committed to the Bible find, in fact, that the Bible says one thing, and we don't fully understand it. And there's ways that we're still blinded in our own ignorance, but uh, the Bible is clear. Number six, the Bible is uh, speaking about its availability, or it, it should be available. Paragraph 8, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the same time, which at the time of writing of it was most generally known to the nations, those Hebrew and Greek writings, they say, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them, that is, to the word of God as it was originally written in those original languages. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar or common languages of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. 
And of course, this builds closely on the paragraph that just came before, right? The Bible's clear. For, for, I mean, it's not equally clear to everybody, and it's not equally clear in all of its parts. But it, what you need to know to be saved, that's, that's clear in the Bible. People need to see it. They need to hear it. They need to be accountable to the Bible. So let's put the Bible in everybody's hands. And of course, that was a big um, part of the Reformation movement, wasn't it? To put the Bible into the common language, whether it's German or English or whatever it was. Availability of the Bible. And then finally, the finality of the Bible, paragraph 10 and 11 of the Scriptures. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which, by the way, is not manifold, in other words, there's not multiple meanings to a text, there's one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So you compare Scripture with Scripture. And then paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. And of course, this is the famous Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. The Scripture alone is our final authority in all matters. So, um, again, this is a, I would hope for all of us, a fairly... Um, we find great agreement on these things. Uh, and giving yourself uh, to these things, to these the, the, the summary here, might be a good way to just sharpen uh, your own ability to speak about the, the Scriptures. All right, I think we can cover one more. We have just a few minutes left. Uh, chapter 2, of God and of the Holy Trinity. <clears throat> uh, once again, I think that we will find great agreement among ourselves on these doctrines as they're stated in the London Confession here. Um, there's three paragraphs. Paragraph one, Waldron outlines this way as um, a description of the attributes of God. The attributes of God, paragraph one. So let's look at it. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way, infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. A lot of good descriptions in there. Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will 
for His own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So a lot of stuff like packed into this one. We just spend a whole like quarter huh, like talking about the attributes of God, and we walk away still going, "Wow, how can you? How can a creature like describe God or even fully understand God?" This is what it's saying that that He is incomprehensible to us um, at one level. We 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 can know true things about God. We just cannot know God exhaustively um, as God knows Himself. Nevertheless, we are given divine revelation about various attributes of God. And you can see them here. I won't go through them all. This would be a great class. You should have gone to it. But, um, but we, can, we, can do, we can see uh, here that in the confession, they're sort of moving from um, what you might call natural or internal attributes of God to his attributes that are only revealed um, by their relation to the creation around him. So sometimes people call it his, his, um, his ad intra attributes and his ad extra um, attributes. Um, we know something about God just in and of himself, speaking about him as it were apart from creation. But we also know some true things about God, seeing him in, in his interaction with creation. And so, so the, this, this confession moves then from those ad intra attributes like self-existence and spirituality and immutability to his ad extra attributes like his being long-suffering, his forgiving, his hating of sin. All right, there's no sin in God himself, but it is nevertheless true eternally that God is just and 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 we see that when he hates the sin in, in, in the creation. So the attributes of God, paragraph one. Paragraph two, we have then the relations of God um, is the way Waldron puts it. I think he means his relations with regard to his creation, his creatures. And here's what it says about God and creation. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them. Now we do glorify God, but we don't contribute to his glory. We reflect his glory, right? That's what it's getting at. So it says, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. 
In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatever, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. So, once again, the relationship of God with his creation, spelled out in this confession, is that God is independent from his creation. This is one of the fundamental theological um, distinctives of the Christian faith, right? There is a creator-creature distinction. God is not his creation. He's not dependent on his creation. His creation is not a part of him. This is opposed to pantheism or panentheism, different versions that are out there which sees uh, a, a connection, a, a oneness in some regard between God and the created world, some interdependency of some sort. Um, this is antithetical to the confession of faith and to the scripture. Um, by the way, remember that uh, we watched a video on progressive Christianity exposing that, and some of those guys were penentheists, right? really denying this, um, this distinction. Uh, we see in this paragraph that God is sovereign over his creation and that he deserves the worship of the creatures. So, And then finally we come to paragraph three, which uh, again, this could be really expanded out, try to say more, but this captures um, succinctly uh, the, the incomprehensibility of the triunity of God. Paragraph three, the triunity or the trinity. Um, paragraph three, we're almost done. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature or being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. You see here, they really highlighted that this is a foundational doctrine, right? I mean, there's a lot of foundational stuff in these first two chapters. This is certainly the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't have the Christian faith if you don't have the Trinity. Some people might, I don't know, some people think that the Trinity is like uh, a nuance of, you know, theological 
angels dancing on the head of a pin or something. But this is a foundational biblical truth, these writers are saying. Um, basically, this um, paragraph just uh, reflects historic, orthodox language to describe this God who is indescribable, right? Uh, the way that the confession describes the Trinity is this way, that there are three subsistences in one substance. Probably you've heard other terminology used, and they're, they're, it's sort of interchangeable. Sometimes we would we say three persons in one being or essence or God, right? And that's an appropriate way to say it as well. The, the confession uses the languages of subsistences and substance. There's lots of technical history behind all this, but um, each of them, it says, each of the three is, on the one hand, each of the three is the fullness of God. Notice the confession says, each has the whole divine essence. And each of them is fully God, not part God. So the confession uses the terms, the essence undivided. It's not a third of God over here, third of God over there, third of God over here, or this being, this 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 um, person is a third God or something like that. Each person is the fullness of God and each person is fully God. Then it goes into the historic language about the relations between the Godhead. Are you familiar with that? Say, what's the difference between the Father and the Son? What's the difference between the Son and the Spirit? Is there any difference? And the way we describe the differences are in terms of the relations, and sometimes we use the term properties, but the relations are the properties of the various members of the Godhead. Here's the historic language. All right, The Father, well, let's start with the Son. I think it's almost easier. The Son is begotten of the Father. Well, that's what a Son is, right? In this case, we say He is eternally begotten. So there was not a time when he was not. He is begotten, and yet he is, as the eternal God, eternally begotten. He eternally relates to the first person as a son to a father. Remember, I tried to make a little bit of a deal about this when we got to Galatians 4.4, and it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his what? His son, implying that the Son is the Son, even before He's born into the world, that He exists eternally as the Son, even before the Incarnation. So this is the doctrine of the eternal Sonship or the eternal generation of Christ. Um, the Spirit, how is the Spirit described? The Spirit is the one, God, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is sent. The Father sends the Spirit. The Son sends His Spirit. So the Spirit proceeds. And then the Father, we just say, He's neither of those. The Father is neither begotten nor, uh, nor um, uh, proceeding. Okay. Say, I'm not sure I understand. Well, fall on your knees and worship. Because this God, and only this God, provides redemption. The Christian gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. And I could develop that. Let's go on. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of a couple last things, and then um, I know we're out of time. 
The classic defense of the Trinity, you're probably familiar with this, right? Three statements. Number one, there is one God and only one God. If you can prove that from the Bible, you're in a good starting place. That one should be, I hope, more obvious. Second truth, there are three who are God. Three persons, subsistences, whatever you want to call it. There are three that are called God. And the third truth, and, and so that would be where we go to the scriptures to prove the deity of Christ, the, the, the deity of, of the Father, the Spirit. Um, and then the last truth is this. Those three are distinct. It's not one God putting on three different hats. Those three are distinct. And if you prove those three from the scriptures, that essentially is, as we understand it, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I had somebody actually just this week talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Anyway, uh, let's go on together. Uh, They are found together in the scripture, and these are some really helpful sort of key passages. The baptism of Jesus, remember that? You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have God the Spirit coming down like as it were a dove. And you have the Great Commission. This is another one of those passages. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then finally, you have the Pauline blessing in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. So the Bible clearly teaches in, in, in all of these ways um, something about the nature of God that we cannot fully comprehend, but what we are to believe. Um, so that's it. First two chapters, you made it through. Um, I think that mostly this is just just um, orthodox. It is orthodox Christianity. Um, maybe nothing distinctive here in terms of this confession, but I hope that it was a, a helpful summary. And maybe we'll sharpen... Um, even some of the way that you think about um, these things. So, 